Welcome to the Documentary Photography Review Podcast. My name is Chris King, and in this episode, I'm speaking to documentary photographer and filmmaker Simon Hipkins. Simon has worked professionally in photography and film for 15 years and has worked as director, producer, cameraman and editor for documentaries for the BBC and Channel 4. In 2013, Simon was named as one of the winners of the Magenta Foundation's Emerging Photographer Awards for his photo story on the town of Ostrava in the Czech Republic and his recent multimedia project The Circle, created in collaboration with another photographer and a sound artist on internally displaced people in Iraq, was a finalist for the prestigious Dorothea Lyon Paul Taylor Prize. In our conversation, we talk about Simon's experiences in creating The Circle, how they went about creating and presenting the work, as well as discussing how they are obtaining funding to sustain the project. Simon and his collaborators have recently completed a successful crowdfunding campaign, and so we talk a bit about the strengths of this form of funding and its role and benefits in getting unreported and underreported stories to a greater audience. We cover a lot of topics, so there's plenty for everyone, and show notes with more information on Simon and links to the people and organisations we mention can be found at documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash interviews. And now for my conversation with Simon Hipkins. Enjoy. Okay, so if first of all, you could introduce yourself, please, and uh, your journey into documentary photography. Sure. Um, well, I'm, my name's Simon Hipkins, and um, I work as a, as a photographer and filmmaker, mainly, mainly as a filmmaker, but um, for a long time I've, I've, I've been interested in photography. In fact, it was the, the first thing I was interested in was photography um, from a really young age. Um, I grew up in a small village in Lancashire, and uh, there wasn't much going on there really, um, which made me very curious about the world, I suppose. Um, so, photography and film has been a kind of way of meeting more people, mm-hmm. getting out and about, and discovering more about people and more about the world. And in terms of your transition from photography into filmmaking, when did that happen and, and why? It's, it's, it's a strange one, I suppose. I've, I've, the two have always coexisted for me in right, some okay. sense, in that really from really young, a really young age I was interested in both mm-hmm. photography and film. More fiction film, actually, initially, than, right. than documentary film. Um, and then I went to, after going to art college, I went to do a photography and film course at Napier University in Scotland, mm-hmm. in Edinburgh, um, and focus. You know, I saw myself definitely being a documentary photographer at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but after a couple of years, quite inadvertently, went on a trip with a friend of mine to Ukraine in the late nineties, and decided to film him going back there rather than photograph it. Partly because he was actually he was into quite into photography, and I thought it'd be more interesting to film him mm-hmm. rediscovering Ukraine. He'd grown up there and, and left when he was ten, so the first time he was going back. So I ended up with hours and hours of footage that I knew had no idea about how to put this together. Right. Um, but there was some really interesting, it was really interesting material, and it yeah, was a kind sure. of personal journey for him. Mm. Um, so, sort of learned how to transitioned in some way into documentary f- filmmaking through that process mm-hmm. and got hooked on I suppose on that kind of hooked on that kind of story that you can tell through film that, which 
is maybe not not that well suited to photography and there's an intrinsic thing about particularly filmmaking I think there with the watching something from start to finish and telling a story mm-hmm. and sort of going on a journey with that story whereas um, photography feels much more like a elliptical narrative mm-hmm. maybe that where you you're kind of you're telling a story but it's through a series of images and there's no start or end in some sense with it um, which after then working in basically I ended up working in film for a long time but carried on taking pictures just purely for my my own interest mm-hmm. um, and then about five years ago was revisiting some of those images that I had taken basically started looking at some of these negatives that I'd just been putting away in a drawer yeah. and rediscovered my love for photography mm-hmm. <laughs> a bit and, and mainly for this sense of the other narrative, the other kind of narrative and the other kind of storytelling that um, you can tell through still images um, and thought, oh, this is actually really interesting and it's, I'm finding it really interesting because I'm coming from working in a very kind of linear narrative for a long time mm-hmm. and suddenly there's this kind of freedom there with photography so I, I felt suddenly very free mm-hmm. with photography again um, and thought it would be interesting and then over the last five years I've been kind of working at trying to, to reconcile those two in some sense mm-hmm. um, and I think there's a lot you know there's a lot that could be can be done with that um, yeah. and a lot of interesting things that can come out which is maybe much more possible to do now with the technology that's, yeah. that's there. Yeah. And you've been working on a project uh, recently where you have been incorporating stills and, and video called The Circle. Can you maybe share a little bit about that? Yeah, well, The, the Circle um, is a project about internally displaced people in Iraq um, that I've been making with um, a fellow photographer called Agata Skovranek and a sound designer and composer called David McCauley. And yeah, it, it came about basically through conversations with, with both Agatha and with, with David. Um, initially with Agatha, Agatha's worked for a long time as a photojournalist in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. She lives in Istanbul, has been going to Iraq since 2007. Um, and we, we actually went to university together. We okay. studied photography together. So. Mm-hmm. I've known her for 15 odd years and um, no longer now, 17 years <laughs> and we always spoke, we, we, we did a few projects when we were at university together and, and got mm-hmm. on fairly well but then both went our different ways. Mm-hmm. I got her more into photojournalism, myself more into documentary film but we always talked about maybe doing a project together yeah. and um, both of us felt very strongly in 2003 against uh, the invasion in Iraq and protested against it. Um, so it was something It was something that we both cared a lot about, really, mm-hmm. about what, what happened after 2003. Um, I suppose because, like, uh, a lot of people felt very frustrated that a lot of people had protested against Western intervention in Iraq, mm-hmm. and, um, and it hadn't hadn't been listened to yeah. and we, we all know the kind of results now yeah. of, of that and then as time went on we kept talking about especially I mean with regard to telling me about her stories of going to Iraq and what was going on there and what she was seeing on the ground how how 
things were falling apart there and the situation for people there mm-hmm. that we felt this just sad that these this story of ordinary people isn't really being conveyed and that mm. increasingly Iraq was becoming viewed through statistics and mm. you know it's, it's still like that more or less every week you hear about 100 people being killed in explosions or 50 people killed today or in bombings and you never really get a sense of who those people are and a sense of value attached to people's lives there so mm-hmm. we felt very strongly about trying to do a project that would I suppose show Iraq in a different light or show Iraqis in a different light and humanize humanize people there mm-hmm. again really because it seems that over the I mean you know, arguably even since the 1990s with what was happening with the, the sanctions mm. that people have been dehumanized in the eyes of Western media Iraqis have been dehumanized to being statistics yeah. and um, deaths with without any value attached to, to the life mm-hmm. behind them um, and did you did you collaborate beyond uh, just uh, just with Agatha did you collaborate with NGOs or are you feeding into um, a wider campaign to try and show that human element and, and the human stories and and the other side to existence in Iraq. Well, we're not part of any. Um, we you know we we have worked with with several NGOs in Iraq to be able to actually do some of this work right. and to be able yep. to interview different people and, and okay. meet people from different communities. And um, some incredibly helpful people have really really helped facilitate that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we. I mean, we're now at that stage where we've 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 kind of built a more concrete idea as a project, so mm. we are looking for those partnerships. Right, okay. Um, but I wouldn't say we're specifically, you know, looking at doing a, a, a campaign. I, I think we're just trying to raise general awareness mm. about about um, about the situation many people face, but actually the, about really the, the con- I suppose to get the audiences to think about the consequences of displacement and mm. internally displaced people. And I mean, Iraq's got a long history with it, but now you can really see it, get a sense of it. A lot of people who, who had the resources to leave the country have left yeah. over the last 10, 15 years. Um, and now the people who are, lots of people in Iraq just don't have the resources to leave mm. um, because there are more the people who don't have any, any economic means to do that. So now with continuing conflicts and conflicts with ISIS, you, you're just having a large internal displacement mm-hmm. in the country, which has been go- ongoing for a long time, but just it's happened rapidly since January 2014. There's been three million more internally displaced people. So today, sort of, it's um, as of June, June 2015, the estimates were saying four million internally displaced people within Iraq. Right of a country of 34 million mm. um, and within when you kind of look at that and this is in some sense what we're trying to get out with the project a lot of that displacement is different ethnic groups or religious groups gathering together and clustering together right. so you're seeing I mean as has been happening for a long time you're seeing Iraq fragments into those different groups mm-hmm. and I think that's the, the thing that maybe people don't realise is that how and not just Iraq, but also other places, lots of other places in, in the Middle East, um, that how a lot of these nations were, were, were had a multicultural dimension to them and had 
different ethnicities, different religions living side by side with mm -hmm. one another. And that's all now being broken down and fragmented. Mm -hmm. And that was a sense of trying to sort of convey that as well and, and gather and actually show some of the similarities some of these different groups are experiencing both across the within different areas of Iraq but also in terms of the history mm -hmm. so um, and do you think do you think despite this fragmentation that you know if things were to improve and um, stability was nurtured and, and established within Iraq do you think that fragmentation would disappear and, and people would uh, revert back to becoming you know that cohesive group of different ethnicities and, and religions as as it used to be in the past or do you think that fragmentation would remain permanent dis despite any sort of improvement in the situation uh, i think there's always hope i think there's always hope i think i think it, people can sometimes look at things and get very um very pessimistic that there's there's no solutions there i mean i don't know what i don't know what the solutions are at mm. all, but I think there are, there are lots of Iraqis who have good ideas and good good solutions to maybe what them. And I think part of that is it's important for people in the future to have a, a collective memory of maybe that some of the diversity and some of the multiculturalism, some of the tolerance that existed mm -hmm. in Iraq previously, mm. um, and that's a good foundation for rebuilding. Yeah. Rebuilding Iraq, maybe in a different way, but but um, but certainly rebuilding where people can live next to one another again, mm -hmm. in peace. And and then I, th I think you know I think it's with the Middle East right now it's, it's it can seem very depressing. But if you think about the way maybe the situation looked in Central and Central America in the early nineteen eighties, it looked extremely depressing, and mm. things aren't great there now. But they're a lot better than they were then. So. Mm -hmm. It's not necessary. We don't have to necessarily say that, that situation in the Middle East is 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 without solution. No, know? I think yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, and I think also you know the the point that you're making in terms of your body of work focusing on internally displaced people. I think that's it's a very important subject matter that gets often overlooked because there's so much attention on those people who do get out of the country and do have the means or. Um, or by whatever means they get out, but those those people are very much in the minority uh, across the globe, where there are conflicts. You know, there are so many more people who are staying within the borders, or just literally going across the borders. Um, but yeah, just so many more that are just in that in that country stuck, but internally displaced. And I think the mainstream media here, at least, pays no heed to that fact. You know, focusing instead on and those that minority group that are able to get out and and become refugees or asylum seekers. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's really sort of really critical as well to understanding maybe understanding the politics of Iraq today and understanding the politics of the Middle East to kind of understand the effects of those that population displacements and mm. yeah, that, and how then it can it can uh, it can feed into you know. A, a, even more fragmentation. So, um, and how people are able to maybe people are able to exploit some of that fragmentation to, mm. to their own ends is is, is is important to understand that really. Mm -hmm. It's actually, uh, I mean, it's hugely sort of humbling as well to be able to go and interview people from different backgrounds and hear these 
incredible stories and sort of see see people despite surviving despite those stories you know mm. and see them uh, I mean in a sense that everybody we met and interviewed uh, were certainly not passive victims you know they were very much like they were victims but not passive in any way mm. and uh, being able to show people with a sense of agency is something that we, we kind of wanted to to convey with this, mm -hmm. even if it's only in the piece as a whole, really, that, mm. that, that by kind of collecting these stories together, it gives some dignity and agency back to the people involved in mm -hmm. it. And how did you make contact with the organisations, the indigenous organisations that you worked with? Um, well, some of them, we, some some people we just approached and explained what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Other people, it was it was existing relationships with Agata. She she right. probably can tell you more about that. And then now we're trying to build further on that by, um, yeah, with 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 uh, we've done a sort of first first iteration of the work with a small exhibition in London, mm -hmm. um, and we've done a crowdfunding campaign. That's been really helpful in terms of building a network of just getting people interested in the project and what we're doing, and, and getting the Iraqi diaspora interested in it, mm -hmm. um, and there's. Um, one particular organisation who are going to help us with uh, the book that we're going to produce to go along with the future exhibitions and we want to create this book which will give a bit more contextual information than the work itself gives mm -hmm. um, and the idea is that at the moment we're, we're talking to different Iraqi writers from different backgrounds to contribute to that book so right. it will be kind of images from, from the exhibition but then essays, poems um, analysis on on in the internally displaced people in Iraq. So nice. That's 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 our in, that's the plan at the yeah, moment. Yeah. <laughs> Great. You mentioned that um, you've successfully um, completed a campaign, crowdfunding campaign. What were your experiences with that, and you know what lessons have you learned? Yeah, it's it's really hard. Work. It's really hard work. It's a lot harder than we thought it was going to be, mm -hmm. um, and. Yeah, I would say, I mean, we learned a huge amount from it. I mean, just on practicalities, I think all the things that we should have had in place beforehand, which is having a net, trying to build a network first before you launch your campaign is crucial. So mm -hmm. whether that's through your, your own social media or through connecting with communities and groups and organisations that will be interested in your project, then that's something cer certainly worth doing and spending some time building that before you launch your crowdfunding campaign is crucial mm. so and it's just good for you anyway for the project yeah, actually yeah. but to, to just get into that mindset I need to build an audience before I, before I before I kind of fully explain what I'm doing and, and launch a crowdfunding campaign so to do enough to kind of build an audience for what you're doing mm -hmm. I mean in our case we, we used a we created a Facebook page for the project, which was a good way of quickly building an audience through existing contacts and through friends' contacts. Okay. That might not suit everyone, but but it was it it worked quite well for us. We did that. We did. We said twenty five days to do it. I, I think it would have been better to do thirty thirty five days. Right. Um, and um, because you just end up, you just it goes time goes by so quickly. Mm. Um, and but any longer than that, and I think you're in danger that 
because already even with 25 days a lot of people put in in the last five six days yeah <laughs> you have to be quite you have to get over any kind of reserve nature you might have i mean prior to doing this campaign i, I wasn't really engaged at all mm-hmm. a little bit on facebook and twitter but so you have to engage with that i think right unless unless you've got other networks you can i don't think you necessarily have to but you, you have to have some larger networks where the crucial thing is reaching people who not just people you know or your friends mm-hmm. know it's kind of reaching strangers really people who who are just and getting them interested in your project just thinking about that in terms of a, a different network outside of the kind of social media realm the iraqi diaspora you mentioned you engaged with them did they pick it up was that significant yeah that was that was a big help that mm-hmm. was a huge help um yeah that that um that we'd actually already when we were all making the work talking to some some people some kind of community leaders within the, the iraqi diaspora in the, in london and in in uh, germany and istanbul mm-hmm. and uh and then we were able to show the work in the exhibition to some people and, and after the exhibition and they very kindly then introduced the work to their community and hugely grateful for that because mm-hmm. um, it suddenly got interest from people we didn't know at all yeah. and we had, I mean, huge amount of support and, and the psychological boost as much, I mean, a financial support we had, uh, I think, we had... Um, Maybe a fifth of the money come from there for 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 the crowdfunding, yeah. and that very in very quick time, and mm-hmm. the psychological support to sort of feel that mm-hmm. that this project is is being supported by um, many people who've who've experienced similar things to, mm-hmm. to to the works trying to portray or showing is really it was a real boost to us, and and uh, you know the, the great thing is then you've also we've also built relationships through that that will. Yeah. We'll, we'll keep building on. So, yeah, I think that's. I think that that was uh, one of the biggest boosts. And then, strange enough, people who had just people who had just uh, been interested in our previous work that we had done, there was an idea at one point that just to write to anyone who'd liked videos that or, or images that we'd put up on mm-hmm. the internet before. Incredibly, some of those people then were very generous and gave money to this project and people we'd never met before who right. had just said, oh, I really like what you're doing hmm. and had, had, had kind of backed the project. So nice. it's almost like I think the one thing is to, you know, to speak to all your network of family, friends, colleagues, but then it's trying to reach out beyond that hmm. and think about how you, there might be people you, you know but you didn't realise you knew them and that's... that's uh, that's in, that's important to think about. Yeah. Um, and is it something that you would do again? Do you think? Would you recommend? And would you recommend it to others? Um, I would. I would do. It, yeah. I would. I, I think I would recommend it. I think you'd be prepared that it's gonna. You. You're. It's a full time job. In mm. fact, it's like. I mean, and we and we were lucky in that there's there's three of us yeah. doing this project, so we could all reach out and all work hard at it. Mm which probably is how we did it in the short time. Because I don't think if we'd just been one of us, we couldn't have reached that target. Right. And it was not, you know, not a huge sum, but it's for crowdfunding, I suppose. Um, I suppose you have to think about how much you, what realistically you think you can raise mm. through the network that you have already mm-hmm. and 
how much you think you can push that in the time that you have. But I would recommend it. Yeah, I would recommend it. I'd recommend it for the contacts it builds as much as the money mm. and the fact that it sort of forces you to build contacts and mm. build build a bigger network and build an audience for your work. I mean, the incredible things we've got a hundred people who've backed this project. We know there is some audience for yeah. what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that that will grow from there. Mm. Um, and would you do it again yourself though? Yes, yeah, I would do it again, but yeah. I would do it with more preparation. Yeah. And um, I probably wouldn't do it again anytime soon because mm -hmm. I think it's hard to do one of these things every year would be hard to do because you you are initially reaching out to, to friends and family, which is quite hard to do. Mm. So if I did it again, I think I would do it much more, much more building a bigger network first before mm. doing it. So yeah. there's less reliance on your friends yeah, and family. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the, in, the end, in the end of the day, I think... Um, we didn't have to rely on that so much because right. we were able to kind of build the network mm -hmm. and build. But initially, that was like the first, you know, thing. Oh, but yeah. But so, I think building a network is crucial. Building a network before you do it, um, and then being kind of realistic about what you're going to do as well, and maybe thinking about. In our case, we are thinking what we've proposed as a crowdfunding is something that we can deliver for the cost that we're saying. Mm -hmm. But it's really, we're thinking about that crowdfunding as one stage of the project right. and that there are kind of subsequent stages. So right, okay. it is, like the name says, the Kickstarter idea. Mm. It's, I think it's that idea of getting some money where you can deliver something that's realistic and have some impact and show something. But potentially on the back of that, you can then grow that further. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly we will try and grow this project further from okay. having got this with going for more established funding routes now. Right. But this gives us the push to be able to actually do something and deliver something, mm. create a book, yeah. put on a series of exhibitions, but mm. we would like to grow it further than this. I mean, we'll see whether we're able to do that or not, but I think that's way, the way people should think maybe about crowdfunding is to think about it doing one part of the project or something that they can deliver with that, but mm. that maybe to think about how in the overall scheme of things, say, when they finish the project three or four years later, yeah. and they look at all their budget and funding and how it all came from, the crowdfunding was one part of that. Mm. Yeah, okay. So what, what do you see as being the next, the progression of the, the project? So after the book, after you've developed that, what would you say is, is what are you aiming towards? Well, I suppose, I mean, for us, it's, it's kind of collecting more, it's important to try and collect more stories really especially right. as this is a continuing story so i would like to see i would like to be able to make another trip or possibly two more trips to be able mm -hmm. to interview more people um collect more stories and images and then have more time to work to create more of a multi-screen exhibition installation piece that's mm -hmm. a kind of on a kind of larger scale i mean as it as it stands what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to produce a book yeah. and put on possibly expand the works a bit more and put on the work in several several other places mm -hmm. but I think we could I think it could be it could grow a bit further than that and uh, crucially I, I feel like there, there are some some other interviews to be done and some other right. groups of people to interview and talk to um, and especially now we've built doing this we've built more connections in Iraq so mm. 
it would be possible to to work there in a way that we we hadn't been able to before. So off the back of the crowdfunding campaign, off the back of the crowdfunding campaign, off the back of the exhibition, yeah, and and just the fact that we can prove and show people what we're Mm. doing and that this actually is going to end up somewhere, yeah, and is that 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 we we can grow it from that. Mm and so the the exhibition that you did was was an installation with video projection and uh, a small exhibition of stills. Why did you choose that form to kind of uh, exhibit the work and, and share the work with people? We initially thought of this project as more of an online project, and we were going to initially do it as as more of a interactive website or interactive to a degree kind of website mm-hmm. and uh, a kind of place where we could collect stories and, yep. and show stories and it's supposed to be more of a although in an online platform it may be more of a traditional documentary storytelling way but I think we 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 I mean may, we may still end up doing that at some point down the line with the projects but I think we really felt we wanted to create something more physical with the with the work and more of a, a place which could where something could be viewed collectively I mean I, I have to say I do really I really enjoy all documentary storytelling and mm-hmm. I, li- I would still very much like to do it as an online piece but mm-hmm. I think uh, it's particularly because it was this sense of trying to put the audience get the audience close to closer to people in Iraq in a way so we want to create an immersive environment where mm-hmm. people would feel as close as possible to the yeah. people that who we were showing we'd interviewed I suppose it's for, for me particularly as well coming from a film background where people come in sit down and watch a film in you know ideally in a cinema and they, mm-hmm. they kind of watch something together and then go away and talk about it that's your ideal situation for a filmmaker to have this mm. collective experience and I thought well I think we we were like oh we wanted to create something which was like that which would move people on a emotional and visceral level mm-hmm. um, and that's that's a lot harder to do online yeah, than it is in a physical space. Mm-hmm. And there's also that sense of, with the sort of experiments we were doing with still and moving image and, and sound, that it would work much better in a physical space mm-hmm. and that, in a way, it would, be a, it would become a cinematic experience in which you'd come close, closer to the subject, um, but kind of doing it in, in a different way, in a kind of non-linear way. So. Mm-hmm. It has the the piece has similarities to a film, I think, but there isn't any beginning or end to it, and it's it's much more like like we were talking before. It has that thing of more of a elliptical narrative. Mm. So you you're kind of going around the story rather than saying it from 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 beginning to end. Um, Beyond the collective experience, what do you think the the positive um, aspects of creating such an installation are oh. because it, you know in many respects you're, you're really limiting the audience um, so you know that's the yeah. downside but yeah that's the massive downside yeah. you just can't reach as many people which yeah. is why we're now trying to get the exhibition on in lots more places and mm-hmm. trying to be much more creative about how we exhibit the work as well so where it's possible we really maybe do it in collaboration with galleries but not show it in galleries Right. Show it much more in public spaces where, mm-hmm. where people just walking along the street and come across it. That yeah. will be our ideal yeah. situation, yeah. you know, to, to do it as a 
take over a shop space, you know, mm. in, in Oxford Street would be great. Yeah. <laughs> and having South Bank, South Bank. Yeah. Having, yeah, an external exhibition in South Bank would be amazing. That would be fantastic mm. for people to just be able to come across it and wander, wander through it. Yeah. And then I, I know, obviously, we're not going to reach the, the same amount of people, but through that, no. but then the way you reach the, you reach them is different. Mm. It's different. So that I think there's a there's a there's a benefit to it in terms of what you can create in in installation and in an immersive experience can be can be more total, a more of a kind of total experience than mm. say you can create on an online platform because you're you're sort of locking people in a room and or having them walk into a room and mm. there's no other distractions around them. It's the same thing as sitting and going to a film, the difference of watching a film at home as opposed to going to watch it in a cinema. You, you sat, sat down and there's a darkened room and you have to give it your full attention. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the benefit mm -hmm. for doing it. So, which was something particularly with a subject we thought was important to do because there has been a lot of, there has been a lot of uh, news and reportage about Iraq, but mm. part of our feeling was a lot of that was, was being lost through, through the many sort of statistics and, yeah. And maybe a certain amount of fatigue from from a kind of yeah for sort of news fatigue in a way of, of stories coming out of Iraq. So we were trying. The thing was part of part of the a big part of the motivation of the work was trying to portray Iraq in a in a different light, in a kind of alternative light. And so this form makes more sense for that. Mm -hmm. I think in, in in this sense, you know. Yeah. So, but you definitely do intend to explore. Like a more interactive web-based. Well, we would uh, like to, yeah, because there are massive benefits to yeah. that. I mean, this, this, I mean, this, this. Hopefully, the the future exhibitions and the book, the book particularly alongside them, will will give more contextual information about mm. the different people in as who are included in the piece and the different stories and here here, maybe a bit more analysis about the situation and the history, but the potential of what you could do as an online platform for that would be much bigger, yeah. you know, and yeah. the fact that you can then, you can then really kind of dig down, you can have a, a very engaging story on the surface, but then for those who are interested can really dig down into the history behind yeah. those stories. Yeah. And that's something that, that I think is so, could really work well online. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, I mean, it is all, this is, as the project develops, we hope, we're hopefully we'll be able to do that. Yeah. And have you, have you ever been involved in any sort of interactive web documentary style stuff? I worked on one um, last year, but purely making the films for, for, for making films that were then going to be part of a, an online platform, which was a kind of a history of a, an organisation that works with immigrants who've come to Ireland over the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. So in this case, I just, I, I made the, the top level if you like, of the interactive piece, which was the kind of short films, yeah. human stories that were about engaging an audience in, just in through good stories really, mm. but through those good stories you kind of understood why this, it's a kind of law centre actually, mainly a law centre that works to, works representing immigrants to Ireland, mm -hmm. helps them with their legal cases and basically fights on their fights on their behalf for changes in policy at a government level. So okay. 
achieve re really achieve incredible things, but mm -hmm. through strategic casework, mm -hmm. which isn't, <laughs> which you know for 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 a lot of people isn't the most engaging thing. Mm. <laughs> but, but actually, when you get into it and you understand, oh, actually, this is this is a story of a girl. Who, one of the stories was about a girl who'd been trafficked to Ireland for prostitution at 15 and mm -hmm. had been um, in a terrible situation for six or seven years before she was able to escape the pimp and the gang that she was involved with and then suddenly she's faced with deportation and that how is this you know how, how is it that there's no structures in place within the society to be able to deal with what's happened to this individual mm. as a result of, and, and there are many many cases like that particularly with a country that where um, immigration is relatively new was mm -hmm. in Ireland's case but then happened happened very rapidly yeah, yeah. there's a sense of the the infrastructure and the policy just not being there mm. so they this NGO did incredible work, has done incredible work to mm -hmm. kind of help uh, there to be more fair policy with regards to, to immigration mm -hmm. to Ireland and what's um, the name of the project it was it was called moving lives okay moving lives mm -hmm. Um, and the organisation was called the Immigrant Council of Ireland. Okay. And um, how did that come about? How did they find you? Yeah, I mean, basically the organisation has been going for about 12 years. And um, I, I previously, I had, a, I had a parallel career for a while as an editor. So I worked okay. in Ireland editing a, um, a film that was actually about a Filipino woman and her child who'd come to Ireland to work. Mm -hmm. There. So I, I knew some of the people involved. Yes. I knew an arts organisation who'd been asked to do a kind of study, really, of the NGO. Mm -hmm. um, and they had a very, the arts organisation had a very strong desire to not just sort of produce a PDF report that no one was, no ordinary kind of members of the public were going to read. Yeah. They wanted to produce something that maybe different people could access at different levels. Yeah. So. Yeah, we spoke a lot about this. So, I, and I was, I spoke to them at the early stages, and we talked about how film could be used as a, as a very engaging way. Mm. Particularly, we told sort of really, really strong human stories that weren't at all about how the NGO would help those people, but mm. just were just engaging stories about great characters yeah. who had something strong to say mm. and had, had survived in some way. Yeah. You know, survived being an immigrant in a new country. Mm -hmm for various different reasons. And then, so they, the NGO kind of opened their case files to me and let me go and meet lots of their former right. clients nice and current clients. And um, pretty much gave me a free reign to then do these, do these films. Brilliant. And then on a second level, we then did interviews with all the key figures within the NGOs mm -hmm. who then responded to the films Right. but then put those films into the kind of bigger context mm. of how that case is representative of so many cases and what that means in terms of European law. So yeah. for a more specialised audience yeah, at that yeah. point it becomes much more interesting mm. um, for people who actually know the law and then um, underneath that kind of giving a history of the organisation's development on a kind of timeline. So quite a simple website effectively yeah. but yeah with different levels to it mm. for different audiences. Yeah. And one of your one of the videos that you produced has won an award, is that correct? Yeah, the, yeah, one of the films was was um was uh about a 
about that was dealing with with uh, the issue of racism in Ireland because mm -hmm. because immigration is relatively new. Yeah, um, it's a huge issue for 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 Irish society at the moment. Um, so in this case, actually, it was lots of parallels to the stories of people coming to the UK in the fifties and sixties. A, a lot of the early on, a lot of immigrants ended up working as bus drivers. Mm. Um, so in this case, it was a it was a, a guy who's originally from Nigeria, but lived in Ireland since he was sixteen. Became a bus driver very early on, mm. you know, in, in his early twenties. But uh, was 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 twenty eight when we did the film, and basically just experienced racism on a daily basis from yeah. just ordinary ordinary people who were, yeah. uh, I suppose, just not used to seeing, not used to having. Uh, a black person as the member of the community mm. so and he was a particularly strong character because he he would kind of fight fight back yeah. you know and it yeah. was a very strong sense of wanting to access the rights that he had mm. as, as an individual in the country yeah um, that really comes across in the in the video definitely he's he, he takes it on the chin but then he gives it back you know in but in a very um, considered way he tries to understand the dynamics and he which I think is great that people like him do stand up and and fight for their rights and but do so in a, in a diplomatic way you know yeah in a, a non-aggressive way really I mean that's really like the impression when I met him was exactly like that was mm. just as here's someone who's philosophical in some sense about what's going on you know mm. and can sort of see the end of the day came from came from um, having an extremely difficult early life in Nigeria and has mm. embraced Ireland as a new place to live and you know th completely saw himself fully out you know 100% Irish mm. and was really but so in some sense he didn't really he didn't really understand what it, uh, didn't there's a sense of him trying to understand the the ignorance really yeah. of the, the people who are who are giving him abuse really yeah. Um, but in a very philosophical way, really, mm. yeah, mm. Um, yeah. And what do you think? You know, based on your experience with stills and and video and uh, and the likes, what do you think is the future of visual and documentary storytelling, and, and what role do you think stills photography in particular has to play in that future? I, I think stills still will have, a, will have a massive role to play in the future. I, I think. I mean, although. There's all the technology now to be able to to shoot moving image to to very high quality. You know, there's just a different value to still images. You know, there's a different quality to them. I don't know. I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about whether there are memories you have in your mind that are still images, and there are memories that are moving images. But mm. when I think of images, I often think of them still as memories. I mm. think of them more as still images. Yeah. And uh, I don't know whether that's just because of the amount of photography we're surrounded with, but or, mm. or whether it is just that's the way your memory works. But um, for me, there's like there's great qualities with both. I think we we'll see a lot more. I mean, hopefully, I, I don't really know what what we'll see in the future. But I would like to see more. I'd like to see more innovation, like we've seen online, mm -hmm. happening in public places and happening in mm. galleries, and more, more, even more so in public spaces. Because I think there's so many more interesting ways we can present stills and moving images within spaces. So in a more interactive way? Yeah, in a more interactive way and in a more immersive way in, mm -hmm. in, uh, on a, I mean, it's potential to show images on a larger scale and it doesn't just have to be prints on, I mean, I like prints on the wall, 
but I also, you know, I think you, you don't have to show images as prints on the wall mm. and, and maybe some projects are better suited to showing them in a different way. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot more potential there mm -hmm. for, for innovation in terms of creating exhibitions and creating spaces where work can be viewed collectively in a more kind of creative way. Yeah, and, and, and interaction, interactivity is part of that, perhaps, mm. you know, where the work itself can change as the audience are, in, as, as the audience are mm -hmm. within that space. Um, and, but do you, think, do you think such innovative uh, approaches to documentary storytelling are likely to be supported by conventional funds? Or do you think to be able to innovate, we would need to crowdfund? Well, I think the crowdfunding thing, like, like so many things now, is, is the initial thing, you know, is that's the thing that's going to really, I'd say that the traditional funding sources are maybe a bit traditional in their, view, in their views on, on the mm. way work's shown, but crowdfunding is definitely, you know, I mean, you, 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 the fact that you, it can be done in a much faster time than, than traditional funding sources. And mm -hmm. it, it, yeah, I think there's a lot more potential there through crowdfunding, but I would say it has to just be part of the, part of the, I think, I mean, ideally you would like, I think it, it, maybe arts funding organizations could start learning a few things from the crowdfunding mm. and seeing the kind of innovation that's going on on through crowdfunding campaigns and then get behind that a bit because crowdfunding is, you know, it is limited how much you can raise from that. Yeah. Um, and why, you know, when you think about it in terms of interactive web documentaries, the likes of Canada and, and France are quite mature in, in terms of their adoption of that particular form of documentary storytelling, visual storytelling. And yet in this country, it's very much in its infancy um, and hasn't been embraced at all. And, you know, we're talking about innovation here in the real world as well, you know, in terms of uh, taking over South Bank and, and putting something that's more immersive and interactive. You know, what, it, what is it that is hindering innovation, do you think, in this country in terms of documentary storytelling? Because obviously, you know, that's a great idea, but, uh, you know, it would require innovative funding uh, approaches to actually make that happen. And the same with interactive web documentary, you know, you, you need to kind of break away from conventional funding and go out alone to try and actually nurture that and build something up. Why do you think in the UK there is that lack of innovation and, and adoption of innovative techniques when it comes to documentary storytelling? That's a good question. That's a good question. I don't, I am... Um, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I can see the incredible things that are produced in Canada and France, and that, mm. and you, you, yeah, exactly. You wonder why, 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 with all the uh, the talent that's in the UK, yeah. can we not be doing things like that? Because that that we've easily got the talent to be able to to do mm. that and produce that kind of work. I wonder whether it's ideological. I do wonder whether sometimes whether it's because we don't. There's a there's a sense of. Um, Arts and document. Well, I think documentary funding, to a degree, still being based around a capital expediency. So, it's got to make some money somehow. Mm. And those kinds of projects, you know, are, are valued in a different way that that are being produced in Canada and France. Maybe they're not particularly making making money, mm. but they're adding a value to the society in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you know, just in terms of education, for instance. Um, and I think maybe that's the challenge. 
for us really to say, well, actually, maybe we need to get people who, maybe not even in the arts organisations, to say this work that we're, we could produce, whether it's an interactive online documentary or an immersive, an immersive space, could have a real value to an organisation or mm. to um, an educational institution that isn't necessarily about not going to make any money but it's going to add add value to society in a different way yeah yeah i'm not sure whether arts funding is, is valuing that you know mm. valuing what 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 it can add to society mm. um, so you think really in order to to explore the and be innovative then we need to crowdfund in the first instance but then also partner up with organizations and get them on board to and understanding educating them as to the importance and the significance and the value of using these innovative techniques. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And then, and then I think it's maybe at that point it's worth going back to the, to the traditional funding bodies and actually say, look, we've got you know, all these people supporting this project mm. we've, online. We've got you know, a whole network of people who are into this project. We've got organisations who are going to use this project to yeah. further the work they're doing, which is incredible work. Why, it simply is kind of why you know, will you help us do this, really? Because mm. and, and, you really ask the question, if they're not prepared to do that, then why, why aren't they prepared to do that when, you have, yeah. when you've built an audience for the work, really? Um, and do you, do you think then, really, in terms of this lack of innovation that's occurring um, in terms of documentary storytelling, you think really the, the key element, the key barrier is the fun, lack of funding support? And the need to seek out alternatives. I don't. Maybe it's also there's there's like a cultural shift going on at the moment with the with things like the crowdfunding and mm. things. The idea of trying to work with organisations that we're kind of not we're not used to doing that so much in Britain because we have a there's a history of a kind of state patronage of the arts, mm. but a certain type of arts, and then there is a history of a lot of people just doing things regardless of that and doing incredible work, but supporting themselves in different ways yeah. which is where some some of the best work in my mind's come from really mm. and now we're at this point where actually potentially there's a way to to kind of raise at least some funding for projects outside of the establishments outside of the funding but culturally we're not we're not fully attuned to that idea mm. um, because there's still a sense of the state the state should be doing this, but mm. it's not. But it's not really. Mm. Um, so I think that's a, that's almost something that probably we've got. To, again, you know, it's up to the to the creators to try and work work mm. and persuade organisations and yeah. and systems that actually say, oh, this something like an installation or something like an interactive website could be hugely beneficial to your organisation. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, yeah, so. So we've got to get out there and, and start convincing people. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I, and I suppose once you build a, building a, the more you've done it and the more you can show, and I would say this is something that I'm definitely learning to be able to kind of document what you're doing and document the fact that you, you put on an exhibition and so many people go along to see it or mm -hmm. you built a website and so, I mean, online you can really, you can really gather those statistics because they do mean a lot to yeah. then when you go to another organisation and you want to do something in the future. Mm. So even like that, that we were talking about, the, the, 
the films that were part of the interactive sides and then mm. getting getting a, this award it meant that within a week a thousand people had watched the film in its entirety mm -hmm. which is in a small in small population and and to watch a 10 minute film in its entirety mm -hmm. about an issue such as racism is it some achievement yeah, you know and yeah. then that'll grow and grow hopefully as the months pass and then you can go to another organization you can say well actually all these films that were produced so many thousand people have watched mm -hmm. them it's had attention in the press it's helped raise the profile of, mm -hmm. of the work that you're doing this is something um positive you know and something to be kind of embraced yeah. really so do you think that's how you're going to steer your production company key pictures is that to try and push for more immersive experience both in the real world and the virtual world absolutely that's yeah. what that's what i would that's what very much what i would like to do i mean it's kind of limited how much you know that's we're we're like a very it's, it's it's mainly me and then a few associates and friends who come and do depending on a project basis mm -hmm. but i definitely would like to yeah definitely the intention is to kind of go in that direction and yeah hopefully push for like a cultural change i think as well where mm -hmm. more and more organizations embrace it and more and more more and more the public are used to that idea as well of things not necessarily having to happen in a traditional arts space mm -hmm. that actually an art project or because i don't see a massive distinction between art projects and documentary projects i think mm -hmm. the two can be can can coexist alongside one another and can mm -hmm. be beneficial for both sides but the more and more organisations see that as adding value to the work they're doing, and that embrace that, and then and the public themselves see see that as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, um, to wrap up, where can people find out about you and your work? They can go on the the website of the production company I run, which is keypictures.org. Um, yeah, we just. I mean, it, that's that's probably the best place to look. I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and then also the, the the I should mention that the the circle has a Facebook page where we're posting regular updates. So, mm. um, yeah, if you if you search for me, Simon Hipkins on Facebook, I'll happily kind of send you an invite to the page, and you you can see see what we're doing there, and I'll, I'll post fairly regular updates on the website as well but mm -hmm. mainly on the facebook page i think okay great well thank you very much thank you thank you very much Cheers. thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any comments you'd like to share on anything we discussed then please do so in the comments section of this podcast page which you can find by going to documentaryphotoreview.com forward slash interviews and then navigate to the page for this podcast. It would be great to hear your thoughts, opinions and experiences around the topics that we discussed. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do share it with others and consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes to help more people discover it. In the next episode, available on the 15th of August, I'll be talking with Agata Skovrenek, a photography and video journalist until recently based in the Middle East and one of Simon's collaborators on the Circle Project. So until then... Take care.